Welcome to the A Fire Podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE. Gunnar Branson. So diversification is a tricky word as different investors define the term differently. And as diverse as portfolios seem to be by country, city, property type, they don't always deliver the benefits that are promised by diversification. So I'm sitting down right now with uh, Brian Biggs, who's the research director, and Madeline Roberts, the research analyst for Grosvenor Americas. Uh, They recently did a deep dive on diversification of portfolios that they wrote about in our most recent issue of AFIRE Summit uh, in an article called City Versus Property. So um, we have them here on the podcast right now, and I'd love to ask them just a few questions around this article and and share some of the insights uh, that the two of you have uh, surfaced. So Brian, what was your process uh, around this and, and what did you learn in general about real estate diversification? Sure, and thank you for having us, Gunnar. The idea of diversification is very simple. You want to have a collection of different types of assets within your portfolio so that when one is up, the other might be down and vice versa. This helps you smooth out some volatility, especially if you have concentrated positions like we tend to have in real estate so that you don't find yourself in any one year um, being hugely underwater. You can sort of smooth out the volatility in real estate returns. But the question is, diversified along what line? Along property, along city, along some some other vector? And there's not a lot of rigorous thinking around this sometimes in the real estate industry. I think there is a sense that diversification just means getting a collection of a lot of different stuff, you know? And and if you're a property type specialist, maybe just a lot of different cities. So what we tried to do is we tried to say, okay, let's assume that you are uh, an institutional investor that has a pretty flexible mandate. You can invest in a variety of different property types. You can invest in a variety of different cities. But your goal is to get a broad-based and diversified um, exposure to the United States physical real estate market. What's the best way to go about doing that? And so what we did was we took some of the ideas from modern portfolio theory which was a discipline that was developed around equities, which is a liquid market with second by second uh, price discovery, very different physical real estate markets, which are illiquid, carry a lot of idiosyncratic risk. They trade in very large lot sizes compared to stocks, and there's just a lot less pricing transparency. But we still took that framework and said, if we apply this framework to real estate, do we get more diversification potential from investing in different cities with the same property type, or concentrating on one city, but diversifying our exposure by property type. And so we basically started from there and said, well, let's walk through all of the typical steps that you typically go through to um, do a diversification analysis with equities, 
but do it with physical real estate. So, I mean, as you looked at that and you did some analyses, you've collected some really interesting data. Madeline, could you give us kind of a picture of, of what you've collected, where you collected it from, and, and what some of the uh, conclusions are? Absolutely. Thank you, Gunnar. And, and thank you, Brian, for prefacing you know, the motivation for this. Sure. In terms of data, we looked at um, the U.S. cities, and we at the core of the data, we use the NACREF property index. And for those that aren't familiar, what NACREF does is it provides returns for institutional grade real estate held in a fiduciary environment within the U.S. So we looked at 25 of the largest of, of the cities that NACREF covers. Um, and we looked at the average quarter on quarter return between the years of 2005 and 2019. And I'll just back up and say this is just for the city component. So this is step one, looking at the cities versus property type specifically. So when we did this, when we looked at a 15-year um, time horizon, we found that San Francisco had the highest average quarter-on-quarter -quarter return of about 2.7%, and Minneapolis the lowest of about 1.5%, so comprising a 1.2% difference. Um, when we looked at property types, however, um, you know, industrial, apartment, retail, and office, we found that there was a significant difference, but a lesser difference between the highest um, return property type, which was industrial, with a 2.4% quarter-on-quarter return, and office with a 2.0% average quarter-on-quarter -quarter return. Um, so cities had a 1.2% delta in the highest performing city, that being San Francisco and the lowest, Minneapolis, whereas within property types, that difference in return was 0.4% between industrial and office. So what we saw is there's more of a difference in returns between cities than there are between property types. So this leads us to believe um, that you can get more diversification by focusing on geography as opposed to property types. The second step of this process was looking at the volatility of these returns over that same time frame. Um, so we looked at the volatility of those 25 cities, and the most volatile was Phoenix, and the least was Minneapolis, um, whereas among property types, office was the most volatile and retail was the least. So the differences in the volatility of return, and the volatility is measured as the standard deviation of the returns over time is materially larger among cities than among property types. So what we saw is cities not only offer um, a higher difference in their returns, but also in volatility as well, whereas property types are more um, close in terms of both their performance as measured by returns, as well as their volatility. The last step is we looked at the correlations among both cities and then property types to understand how correlated um, they were. So what we found is we did a matrix of 25 cities and we saw how correlated they were with one another. And we ultimately found that there are more pockets of low correlation among cities than of property types. Um, in, among property types, uh, uh, the least correlated were between retail and industrial um, with a correlation of 0.81. Whereas among cities, you know, there, there are several cities that have correlations well below that. So they're, they're even less correlated than property types. Houston stood out to us as the, as the least correlated city with the other cities. Um, and we can venture to guess this might be because of how it's driven largely by 
the oil industry and it's kind of in a league of its own among the cities for economic reasons, but we're just speculating. So Houston certainly stood out among cities as being the least correlated, um, whereas the most correlated cities uh, included Los Angeles, Seattle, and let me just get the third one, uh, Atlanta. So the, the most correlated cities were Atlanta, Seattle, and Los Angeles. The least were Houston, Washington, D.C., and Boston. So they, they moved more independently. What that means for us is that cities offer us more opportunities for portfolio diversification than property types do because there's higher variability among returns, among volatility, as well as among correlation. That's astonishing. And, uh, you know, I, I do wonder, and, and, and uh, you know, just taking a moment, thinking about all the implications of that from the standpoint of cities being where the real diversification lies versus product type. And that's not that's not a common wisdom. Uh, certainly, people have gone in different directions than that. Uh, is that something, Brian, that you expected to see this kind of difference? When we describe real estate investing internally, a lot of times we try to take ourselves out of thinking about the sticks and bricks of real estate. And we start thinking, what are the underlying return drivers here? What are you really buying when you buy a building in, say, San Francisco? Of course, you're, you're actually buying title to a sticks and bricks building. But your return is driven by really the underlying supply and demand fundamentals of the market. So for San Francisco, when you buy an asset in San Francisco, you are buying exposure to the technology industry by and large, as well as San Francisco's famously high barriers to entry uh, to, com to compete or develop in the market. When you're buying, let's say, Washington, D.C., you're buying a lot of federal government exposure. When you're buying Houston, you're buying a lot of oil and gas industry exposure. And so there's a lot more variation in what cities do and their underlying economic drivers, and thus the drivers of real estate total returns. There's a lot more variation there than among property types. What you tend to find is that a rising tide lifts all boats and a falling tide sinks all boats. They're very highly correlated at the city level. And so we expected that, yeah, um, the city was going to be the better um, way to achieve diversification than property type. So there's one city in your spectrum that, that shows itself as truly uncorrelated more than any other, and that's Houston. But you also met, mentioned Boston and Washington, D.C. Why do you think so few other cities um, have that characteristic? I think it varies across cities. I, I don't know if I would generalize to say that the rest of those 25 cities, those including those three least correlated that you mentioned, are highly correlated. It's just that those three stood out as being the least correlated with the others. And, and Houston truly leads the packet as being the least correlated. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, and as, as Brian pointed out, investing in Houston is really a play in oil. Um, and it, it's kind of unique within the United States as being an oil, oil town. Um, so for that reason, it might move in differently than those other cities do. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right, Madeline. And I might also just flag that we used a 15-year time frame for this analysis, although we looked at um, many other uh, potential time frames. And within this 15-year period, we saw uh, the oil price spike quite significantly uh, just ahead of the recession in 2008. And we saw it crash spectacularly um, from 2015 onwards, while the rest of the economy was, by contrast, uh, contracting a lot during the recession. 
2008, 9, 10, and uh, growing quite significantly from, you know, 15 to, well, just before the pandemic, I suppose. And so, you know, Houston was really marching to the beat of a different drum because the oil market was marching to the beat of a different drum versus the economy as a whole. You do have a few others in here as well. You know, Washington, D.C. being another one that often stands out because uh, it's a government town by and large that is changing, but the federal government is still the anchor employer of that market. And that's, um, that's an employment base that is almost naturally counter-cyclical in the sense that the federal government tends to turn on the tap by expansionary fiscal policy. Um, when there's a recession, then they tend to pull back at least in principle, uh, when the economy is performing well. And so there is a bit of a counter cyclicality within DC that helps it um, have a lower than average correlation with other markets. So the two of you in this article constructed uh, an efficient frontier portfolio. Uh, given the assumption that you're going to allocate by city, can you talk a bit about that and what you learned and what that portfolio looks like? So an efficient frontier, the idea is that um, higher risk should be associated with higher return. I think that's the one uh, snippet that virtually everyone knows from finance. And so assets that sit along this so-called efficient frontier are the ones that offer the best return for a given level of risk. And so what we have here is on the x-axis, we have risk as measured by the volatility in the property return. And then we have the total return on the y-axis. In theory, the markets should more or less line up on a straight line, right? Those with uh, higher return have higher volatility uh, and vice versa. That's not the case when we look at actual data though. This higher return, higher risk idea is, is a theoretical one, but it doesn't always play out perfectly in real data. Um, what you can do is you can assemble portfolios of, um, of, in this case, cities that offer better uh, risk-adjusted returns or offer better returns for the amount of risk incurred in that portfolio than investing everything in any one city. So what we did was we said, look, I want to achieve a, let's say, 2.2% return. Show me those combination of properties that minimize the amount of volatility I have to incur to get to that 2.2% return. And then we moved up to say 2.4% and show me that combination of cities uh, that we need to invest in to get to a 2.4% return. And then we get every combination, every level of return. We looked for those cities that minimize the amount of risk that we had to take in the process to achieve that return. And what we get in, uh, is something that's called an efficient frontier. It's this sort of curved line around which you're getting higher and higher levels of return, uh, but you tend to be incurring more and more risk. Ideally, an investor wants to be on that curve. Ideally, an investor wants to have a portfolio, again, for a target level of return that's minimizing the amount of risk that you have to take. And we solve for that using using algorithm, using that NACREF data. But essentially, what we're doing is we're exploiting correlations among cities to find those cities that are relatively uncorrelated with one another. When one is up, the other is down and vice versa, as well as um, have uh, low amounts of volatility among one another. And in the process, we ended up creating these efficient frontier portfolios at different levels of target total return. And what we found was out of a sample of 25 cities, you really only need four 
to capture the full amount of diversification potential that a full sample of 25 would offer you. And we found that really fascinating, right? The, the message here is that you don't have to be spread thin across the entirety of the United States, or, or in our case, the entirety of these 25 uh, major cities within the United States to be diversified. That's a very simplistic way of thinking about diversification, a collecting everything mentality. Really, you only need to be, at least in this data, in four cities. And if you do that, and you do that sort of smartly with, with effective target allocations for your desired level of total return, you can minimize your transaction costs, management costs, the amount of market intelligence you need, because you only need to be an expert in four places, and you have it all. I was interested in the four cities you picked out for that. Um, Houston, Minneapolis, Nashville, and San Francisco. <clears throat> only one gateway core market. Most institutional investors put the core gateway markets at the top of their list in terms of wanting to be in them, maybe wanting to be in multiples. Why do you think that your more ideal diversified portfolio doesn't really look at those markets like New York or Los Angeles or what you know, name your favorite gateway city? I would say there's a couple of reasons behind that. One is that San Francisco famously is the most volatile, but one of the highest average return markets in the entire country. Gateway cities do tend to exhibit a little bit more volatility, and that's partly because they really are a little bit more volatile, and that's partly because they're more liquid. And so that volatility can um, make itself manifest in the data a little bit easier than smaller secondary tertiary cities. And so it could potentially be that San Francisco is capturing a generic trait among gateway markets. That's a bit of a hypothesis. I haven't actually tested that yet, but we could see that. I would say that I wouldn't necessarily put too much stock in the specific cities that the algorithm selected. And that's a key point, right? Gunnar, you, you said the cities we selected, but we didn't actually select these cities. This is the result of uh, an optimization process that we ran. But um, the reality is, I think a lot of institutional investors are um, focused on gateway cities, or at least pre-pandemic focused on gateway cities, for a couple of reasons. I, th I think there's some institutional inertia there. I think that there's perhaps a familiarity bias associated with these markets. I think this is where you've seen a lot of institutional capital flow to historically. And so there's a sense that, well, we've always been here type thing. Um, and I think that, again, because they're more informationally efficient, because they are more transparent and incorporate pricing and easier, institutions tend to be a little bit more comfortable in these markets because you're confident that if you want to sell, you can sell. And that's not something that smaller markets like, I'll just pick Nashville, for instance, as one that comes out as being in the efficient portfolio. Nashville hasn't proven out, or at least as long as a market like San Francisco. That doesn't mean that you can't do it, but it just has less of a track record. So when you're thinking about where do we go from here in terms of research and more things to uncover, Madeline, do you have any idea of, of where we want to look further or deeper? Sure. I think there are two things that come to mind. First and foremost, I'm interested to see the impact of COVID. Um, and whether the CISA stand and, and just to see how the property type shake out. I know there's been a whole lot of speculation, both on property type performance as well as city 
performance and often a combination of the two in the real estate world. And secondly, I think the next step is we're really curious about truly what drives these differences. As we were talking about, we largely believe um, and have reason to believe that the economic foundations that are unique to each city, you know, drive some of this difference in performance. Brian was um, characterizing Houston and Washington, D.C. and San Francisco, which have very different employment bases. And so I think we're really interested in seeing um, how those cities' unique economic makeups can affect returns in those cities. And Brian, I'll, I'll let you opine on this, too. No, Matt, I, I don't have anything more to add. I think you're absolutely right. The big question, and perhaps this is coming up, Gunnar, you know, the COVID-19 question, what does it all mean? Um, it's, it, you know, if, if economic activity is what is ultimately, at least on the demand side, driving total return, the natural question is, is yesterday's economic activity going to be the same as tomorrow's economic activity? And that is the million dollar question in COVID, especially around remote working. It seems like almost every podcast I record these days, uh, we get a very similar answer. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, and so we, we've got some learning to do as we go forward. The big thing for me about these cities and, and really the finding of this article is it's not about these cities as such. We took a 25 city sample. This is what shook out. We're not really surprised to see that these cities were the ones that made their way into an efficient frontier portfolio. But every investor is going to have their own constraints in reality. Um, not every investor has the full flexibility to uh, travel across the United States and invest in any one of 25 cities. You know, there is a lot of institutional inertia. There is a lot of kind of legacy holdings that, that constrain investors' ability to access markets in a relatively free-flowing way, like the thought experiment we, uh, we pursued in this article. So I just want to say, don't focus so much on the specific cities necessarily. Focus more on the finding. Focus more on the fact that a relatively small selection of cities can give you maximum portfolio diversification and then operate within your own practical constraints when thinking about how to craft that portfolio. Well, uh, I want to encourage everyone, take a look at this article. The charts alone are worth the price of admission. Very thought-provoking. Um, some really interesting ideas that uh, Brian and Madeline have created here. Um, so make sure you take a look at it. It's in the winter issue of AFIRE Summit. Uh, you can get it right at www.afire.org. So Brian, Madeline, I just want to thank you for being a part of the AFIRE podcast. Thank you, Gunnar. Thank you, Gunnar. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.